What a joy it is uh, to be able to you know, dedicate our children to the Lord. And really, a children dedication is really a dedication of the parents. And I always say the best gift we can give to our children is a healthy, Christ-centered marriage ourselves. So, um, once again, we give thanks to the Lord for all these children in our midst. You know, our theme for this year is outreach driven by the love of God. And so we talk about the greatest love story ever told, right? The first half of the year. And usually each year we'll cover some Old Testament books and then some New Testament books. And so in the second half, the issue we want to deal with is what is the gospel? So we look at the book of Galatians. And the whole theme is that the just shall live by faith. In October and November, we'll look at the book of Galatians. And this is uh, for October. Last week we saw that the gospel is God's revelation. God revealed it. It's not from human beings. Today we'll see the gospel reveals the grace of God. So let's commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we commit this time to you. I pray that you will move mightily in our midst. Pour forth the love of God abundantly into our hearts that we truly understand that salvation is by faith and as a result, we live by grace. And so we commit this time to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not sweet enough laments Christine Hoover, not me. She says, I'm not sweet enough. I wish I was, but I'm not. I'm thinking about someone who is sweet, how lovely she is, and how I wish I was more like her. But in reality, I'm not. And sometimes these voices become so loud, they become real and true. At least they seem. I'm not sweet enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough as a friend. As a spouse, I'm not mum enough. I'm not good enough as a Christian for God to use. And what's worse is that sometimes these condemnations seem to come directly from God. Now friends, I don't know if this resonates. Sometimes we feel like we're just not good enough. And how do we respond? Most of the time, our coping mechanism is to do something that makes us feel good. So for some of us, we try to control things we can control our studies, our work, our family, our children, because when we're in control of these areas, we feel better about ourselves. Sometimes we indulge in meaningless things, right? Playing games online, spending hours looking at clips on YouTube or what have you. Or sometimes we do things that displeases God. It could be an addiction, or something we do that um, doesn't please God, but it makes us feel good about ourselves. So how do we Respond when we feel like we are not good enough. That is the question I would like us to consider today. Last week in Galatians 1, Paul proved his apostolic authority that he is an apostle because he wanted to say, the gospel that I preach is the true gospel. So what is the gospel? That Jesus came to die for us, to rescue us from this evil age. That's what Paul said in the introduction of his letter. And today we want to ask then, what is salvation? If that's the gospel, then what is salvation? How do we get saved? Galatians 2, we'll see what is salvation, and then so what? What is salvation? We are saved. Salvation is by faith, not by works. So what? Because salvation is by faith, therefore we live by grace. Galatians 2, salvation is by faith, not by works. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along 
also. Remember in Galatians 1, he said that the gospel was given a revelation by God. He didn't discuss with anybody. Right? He went to Arabia, spent three years in Damascus, then he went to Jerusalem. Then he says, after 14 years, he went to Jerusalem again. This time he brought Titus. Who is Titus? He's a disciple of Paul, like Timothy. But Timothy was a half-Jewish person, whereas Titus was a Gentile. He was a Greek. And this is important to the point they were trying to prove. It is because of a revelation I went up. Again, he's saying, it's not because of human reasons I went up, but God gave a revelation. I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear I might be running or had run in vain. Paul isn't unsure about the gospel he preached. He's saying this gospel is preached amongst the Gentiles, and he's going to tell this to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He told them in private, because in case they disagree, then he has so many other obstacles to overcome, to share the gospel. So he isn't unsure about the gospel. But not even Titus was with me, though he was Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. They didn't force Titus to be circumcised. What is this important? But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. There are people amongst the church of Galatia that says that salvation by faith in Christ alone is not enough. It's faith plus. Plus, keeping the law, being circumcised. And so this is a test case. Titus was a test case. If the church in Jerusalem insisted that Titus has to be circumcised, then it shows that their view of the gospel is faith plus some works obeying the law. But here they did not. Paul and Barnabas, they were Jewish people, they were already circumcised. So it's important to bring Titus along as a test case. And he says they did not compel Titus to be circumcised, which means they accept that the gospel is supposed to be preached amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. The gospel is about faith alone in Christ. We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel may remain in you. Since this is the nature of the gospel. But from those who were of high reputation, you see, until now, he hasn't said who are those people, right? Every time he mentions the people in Jerusalem, he says they have high reputation, they are somebody. He says, what they are or they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who have reputation contributed nothing to me. They didn't add to my gospel. But on the contrary, seeing that I've entrusted the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, just as Peter has been to the circumcised. For God, who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship, to the circumcised, to the Jews, effectually work for me, to the non-Jews. He's saying, I am equal to Peter. We have the same calling, the same gospel. Peter was called to the Jews, I am called to the non-Jewish people. The gospel is the same. And then finally, he says, who are these people of reputation? He says, recognizing the grace that have been given to me. Who are they? James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John who were reputed to be pillars of the church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They recognized the gospel. 
This James, of course, is not the Apostle James, but the brother, the younger brother of Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was Messiah until Jesus died. Then he was converted, and then now he's the head, among one of the head and leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, he did, right, he, he, when Paul talks about them, he doesn't say who they are, right? He just says they have good reputation, the important people. He isn't speaking, looking down on them or speaking to them in a derogatory manner. It is because he's saying, you know, who they are isn't important. What's important is the content of their message. Does it line up with the Word of God? And so we have to re reflect. Sometimes we look at certain churches, we say, oh, this church is so big. Or certain philosophies or ideas. You know, so many people benefited from this idea. It must work. It must be true. But Paul says, no. It doesn't matter what's the outcome. It doesn't matter who says it. What matters is the content. Does it line up with Scripture? The true gospel is salvation by faith and not by works. And that is what this whole issue is about. He says they accepted our gospel. They said, just remember the poor. And this is something I already wanted to do. Paul says, I was already eager to help the poor. We are saved not because we help the poor, but when we, after we are saved, we want to help. So it, it means Christians, it doesn't mean we don't do good things. We want to because it pleases God. But we are not dependent on good deeds to be accepted by God. And that is the gospel. We are saved by faith and not by works. That is the whole issue of the book of Galatians. That is the issue that sparked the Reformation. You know today why there's Roman Catholic Church and then the Protestant churches, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist? It is because of the Reformation in 1517. Reformation was over this issue of indulgence. What's an indulgence? It means the church can forgive the earthly consequences of our sins. It is not about the salvation, eternal salvation, no, when we face God, how are we going to be saved? You know, it is about the sins we have committed, <clears throat> the earthly consequences. And so, how can we be forgiven? Today, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, still deals with indulgence. Except they don't sell it, they just dispense it. December 8, 2015, Pope Francis opened the huge bronze door of St. Peter's Basilica. Normally, this door is cemented shut because it represents the direct way into the presence of God. So when he opened the door, he's declaring the whole year, the year of the Lord's mercy. When you come, you receive indulgence. Whatever sins you commit, the consequence on this earth, the temporal consequence can be forgiven. Interestingly, 1507, the Pope, Julius II, wanted to build the St. Peter's Basilica, the very church. They didn't have money, so to raise money, he authorized the sale of indulgences. He appointed this German priest called Johann Tetzel to sell indulgences. And Johann Tetzel was a businessman. He, was, he had a lot of ideas. So he came up with this little rhyme to say, you know, if you drop the coin into the box, that's the sound of one of your, your relative's soul escaping from purgatory. And so they went around selling indulgences. They went by Wittenberg uh, in Germany, where Martin Luther lived. And Luther saw a lot of the poor parents couldn't afford money to buy shoes for their children and yet use this money to buy indulgences. And so he was really disturbed. A few years later, 1510, he went to Rome. He did a pilgrimage to Rome. And then he was praying on 
uh, pilot's staircase known as Scala Sancta. Scale means staircase, Sancta means holy. The holy stairs. It was said that when Jesus was brought to meet Pontius Pilate, he actually walked up these steps. And when Saint Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine, of course, after Constantine made Rome Christian, she transported these steps from Jerusalem to Rome. And so, the way you got these steps is like what these people are doing. You kneel at every level and you pray. And so, Martin Luther was doing that on his pilgrimage. He was praying for his grandfather's health. Such acts of external piety and devotion were commonplace at that time. Because how do you, you know, please God or receive forgiveness is by being pious, by performing such acts of great devotion. And so as you're scaling this, you're thinking, can this really help my grandfather? Can we really experience the forgiveness of sin? In Rome, he went through many holy doors. You know, like the St. Peter's Basilica door. The idea is, these doors bring you into the presence of holiness. On his way back to Wittenberg, he reflected deeply on this issue, how we can attain forgiveness. You know, in Wittenberg, uh, they actually have a sample of the breast milk of the Virgin Mary. Now, don't ask me how after 1,500 years, why is it not sour, okay? They also are said to have the twig of, uh, you know, Moses' burning bush. They have a twig of that, one of the branches. It says, if you touch these sacred things, your sins will be forgiven. Finally, everything came to a head in 1517 when he nailed the 95 Theses on another door, the door of Castle Wittenberg. Now, he was not being overdramatic because the door is actually the bulletin board of the village. He nailed those 95 theses of why indulgences are wrong. And number 62, he said, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. What is the treasures of the church? It's not all these holy things like breast milk or, or branches, staircase. It is the gospel. In a Christian faith, we don't have holy things or holy places. We only have holy people and a holy God. Because God is holy. He makes those of us in Christ holy. He deems us, He views us as holy. And that is what is important, people. And then He described His whole salvation experience. He said, night and day I pondered. Now, must remember at this point, He is a monk. He's a holy monk. He loved God. He wanted to do good he led a life of celibacy, and yet he was struggling. So he said, day and night I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. We are not just saved by faith. Our daily life, how we live as Christians, to follow God, to please Him, is also by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God, what is it? It's the righteousness by which through grace and mercy God justifies us through faith. God's righteousness is He justifies us. He declares us righteous. We receive it by faith and it's because of grace and mercy. What is the difference between grace and mercy? Grace means we receive all the good things that we don't deserve. Mercy means we don't receive all the bad things that we deserve. God's wrath, God's judgment, He doesn't give to us, that's mercy. God's favour, God's love, He gives to us, that's grace. Okay? And he says, this is the justice of God. He declares us righteous. 
Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors in paradise. Remember, he went through a lot of holy doors. At that time, all these different doors are meant to bring you in the presence of God. But he says the gospel is the only door that brings you into paradise. The host of scripture took a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, why would God punish people? Why would God pour His wrath on people? He filled Martin Luther with hate and fear. It says, now it had become to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. The only gate that brings us to heaven is not the, the doors in front of St. Peter's Basilica, but it is the gospel. And so we have to reflect, have we experienced this freedom in Christ because of the gospel? Or are we still stuck Constantly feeling that we are not good enough. Wrestling with condemnation, accusation. I don't love God enough. I cannot live the Christian life. God is not pleased with me. The gospel means we are accepted because of who Christ is. Then he used the second example. The first was Titus. The second Paul referred to Cephas, which is Peter. Peter came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now what did Peter do to be condemned? Did he kill somebody? Did he visit prostitutes? It was overeating. Okay? Some eating habits. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, means people from the church in Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, away from Gentiles, fearing the party of circumcision, fearing those who came from the church of Jerusalem. Now, Peter has received a revelation from God, remember? He says all things are clean. You know, Gentiles are not dirty because Jewish people views non-Jewish Gentiles people as dirty, inferior. I don't want to be close to them. I cannot eat with them. But Peter received this revelation, so he ate with the Gentiles. But when people from the church in Jerusalem came, he was afraid. After all, Peter himself was a leader, right? He would think, what would these people think of me? What about my reputation? How would they view me? And so, he withdrew. Now, this is consistent with Peter, right? He always overreacts. Jesus says, you know, you're going to what, uh, deny me. He says, no, even if everybody leaves you, I will not. The high priest came to uh, arrest, arrest Pete, uh, Jesus. And then Peter took out the sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. We don't know why he withdrew, but I guess if we were in his shoes, we probably would. We're afraid of what other people will think of us, especially people of reputation, people who mean something to us. So he withdrew. Not only that, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. There were other people like the result. Even Barnabas was carried away by hypocrisy. Now, who is Barnabas? When the church didn't know Paul, when they were afraid, still afraid of Paul, Barnabas came alongside Paul. He staked his reputation on Paul. This was the man, and even he was afraid. He was affected by Peter's behavior. So sometimes we have to be aware you know, of our behaviors, how it influences others. Is it for good or for bad? We cannot say, I just live my own life, I'm an individual. Yes, but we are still called as a community. So we do impact each other. How do we live our lives as a Christ follower? And so this whole issue... <clears throat> It's about salvation by faith 
uh, not by works. The whole issue of the book of Galatians is about this. The gospel is that we stand before a holy God. How? Not based on the good deeds that we do. Because God demands perfection. And no one is perfect. None of us can attain the standards of God. Are you good? How do you prove that? Because, you know, I gave some money to some poor people. Now, how much must you give in order to qualify you to be good? God demands perfection, everything you have. And even after you give everything, you're still not good enough. And that is why we need the gospel. Christ coming to die on behalf, our behalf, for us. And so we're accepted, we're loved by God because of what Christ has done. That is the gospel. So we say the gospel is either of grace or it's of grace. It's either by faith or it's by faith. Now what do I mean? The gospel is either by, saved by grace or it is not the gospel at all. The gospel is either we are saved by faith or it is not the good news at all. If we have to depend on ourselves to be good, to be accepted by God, that is not the good news because we all fail. And so we think of the gospel, grace, forgiveness. We feel that it's unfair, right? If I ask you to forgive somebody who has wronged you, how would you feel? It's unfair. Why should I? And that is why grace is really the defining value of the Christian faith against all these other religions and philosophy. Philip Yancey, he said this, grace is irrational, unfair, and unjust. It only makes sense if I believe in another world governed by a merciful God who always offers another chance. You see, if you don't believe there's another world, there's eternity, there's God, then why should I forgive? Why should I not have my vengeance? Because this is the only life I have, you know? The only chance I get. If you want me to forgive, to show grace, it's irrational. Unless I believe there's an eternity. Unless I've experienced this from God, the grace and forgiveness, then it makes sense for me to do that. And when we don't, we don't, we're unwilling to believe that God, that vengeance belongs to a God that God is a better justice maker. We want to take revenge. You know what happens? We go into this cycle of vengeance and violence. You just look at what just happened in Israel and Palestine. After generations and generations, you kill my father, then I kill you, kill you back. Then your children will take revenge and kill you. And it's constantly going on. Unless one side decides there must be grace and forgiveness, then we can break this cycle of violence. Otherwise, it just perpetuates. When we talk about faith, religion, forgiveness, you know, everybody have their thoughts, their criticisms, their views. But when people experience grace, they have nothing to say. That is what Paul would go on to say in Galatians 5. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law against it. You can have all your rational arguments, but you may experience grace and forgiveness that you don't deserve. You get it. You get the gospel. Nelson Mandela, you know, he was jailed for 27 years because he was fighting for freedom. Finally, he was released. He became the first elected president of South Africa. You know, on his inauguration, do you know who he invited upstage with him? The jailer that looked over him for the last 27 years, who insulted him daily, who, who made his life miserable every day. Friends, that is grace. That is forgiveness. 
And that is what Jesus did for us when Jesus died and resurrected. He invited the whole world up onto this eternal stage. Forgiveness is there. We just need to respond by faith. And so this whole idea of salvation by faith is important for believers. Otherwise, to us, God is always the angry judge. You know, arms folded in one corner waiting for us to sin and then punish us. We will never have this intimacy with God. But salvation by faith, we realize we are completely already accepted. Salvation by faith is actually important also to people who don't believe in God. What do I mean? Even if we don't believe in God, you know, we will always ponder what is the purpose of my existence? Why am I here? Right? We'll never see an animal stand at one corner very emo and think, oh, why am I existing today? But as human beings, we do that. And we try to prove this world subconsciously, whether we know it or not, through performance. We validate the purpose of our existence through maybe love, family, career, things that make us feel good. But when we try to validate our worth through all these external things, we will always struggle. It will always not be enough. Even we think it's enough, there are some times when we think, you know, when we're alone, we ponder about life, we think, really, is this what life is about? That is why Augustine, he said, that as uh, we were always, as human beings, we always be restless until we find rest in our Creator. Until we come back to the source of life, then we will rest. Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher and mathematician, the French guy, and eventually, later in life, he became a Christian, he, he became a theologian, this guy is GEP, okay, gifted, gifted in everything he does. He said, in every one of us, there's a God-shaped vacuum that nothing can fill but God. Back at that time, of course, they, they just discovered this concept of vacuum, right? Nothing can fill vacuum. But he's saying that this vacuum in our lives, only God can fill. Until we come back to the source of life. Then we understand where I came from, what I'm doing here, where I'm going, then life will make sense. Friends, if you didn't know you're coming to QBC today, how do you know which road to take, which MRT to take? You'll just be going in circles. And after driving a while, you wonder, what am I driving for? I mean, the, the journey is nice, right? Now we say, people say, just enjoy the journey. Don't care about the destination. Sure. You only say that because you don't know the destination. You drive and then you waste gas and then gas price is so expensive somehow. After a while, you say, why am I driving? The scenery is nice, but what am I doing here? And that is what life is about. Salvation by faith, not by works, results in living by grace, not by effort. And so it continues, but Paul says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Peter, Barnabas, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles, means you eat with them, you eat the same food, there's no haram or non-haram, not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Why is it that you're asking the Gentiles now to you know, follow the law? We are Jews by nature, not sinners among the Gentiles. Now this is how Jewish people viewed Gentiles at the time. They are sinners. We, the Jews, are the descendants of Abraham, the elected one, the non-sinners. So Paul is saying, if we really think this way, but yet we cannot live up to the God law, why are we doing, in, insisting that other people do it? Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
See, you know, you know that we, it's not by the, observing the law that we are justified, that we become righteous. It's by believing in Christ. So why are you insisting that those Gentiles follow the law? He gets to the crux and the climax of his theology in the book of Galatians. The just shall live by faith. We are justified by faith. Now, what does it mean by justification? I am good. I become good. I do good. Justification is an act of God whereby He declares, declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ. Justification is an act of God whereby He declares the, unbelie- the believing sinners righteous in Christ. Let's unpack this. Justification is an act, not a process. It's not a journey. The process of us, after we become Christians, to live holy lives, to become Christ-like, is known as sanctification. The moment we are righteous is the moment we believe Christ and are born again. Now, when that happens, we don't know. Maybe it's during the sinner's prayer. Maybe you raise your hands. Maybe one day you're reading the Bible and you're touched. I don't know. It's an, it's an act of God. So when I lead someone to Christ, they made the sinner's prayer. I don't automatically assume they're Christians. Somewhere along the line, they will be. But the moment that happens, that act happens, what comes next, the whole life of following Christ, is not justification. Meaning you are already righteous in the sight of God. It's an act of God, not by our own effort. God sees us, the way God sees us is that you are righteous. He declares. He doesn't make us righteous. You are not righteous. You are not good in your behavior and life. But God views you that way as a saint. It's not just forgiveness or pardon. When we think about justification, we think, oh, my sins are forgiven. Yeah, then we sin again and then we need forgiveness. God pardons us, but there's a record. But righteousness, imputed right, or justified, called imputed righteousness, is not like that. Imputed because it's what Christ has done, He gives to us. The sense of credit, not just forgiveness or pardon. It's like, if you give to your children your credit card, you know, they use your credit card, they got money to spend, but it's not theirs, it's yours. We stand righteous before God because of what Christ has done on the cross. When we are born again, we trust in Christ, His credit given to us. So it's more than just forgiveness and pardon. Finally, God justifies sinners. Jesus says, if you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. Only the sick will need a doctor, right? And therefore, only those who realize that we are sinners, we cannot depend on ourselves, then we will need God. And that is what justification is about. But you say, yes, I'm justified. But you know, I still sin. I still fall. Why? So what? Does it mean that the gospel has no power? Does it mean that what Jesus did is not enough? Well, we asked that question. So did Paul. So he goes on to say, but, he said we are justified by faith in Christ, right? Not by works of the law. But, if, while we are seeking to be justified in Christ, not by law, we still sin. We have been found sinners. We still fall. Does it mean Christ then is a minister of sin? May may it never be. It's a strong negative force. No! For if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says, you know, I'm destroying the past that we need law. And now if I'm saying we go back to the law, then I'm a transgressor. This is what Paul is saying, that we struggle, but it's not because the gospel has no power. 
You know, Martin Luther, when he, he read this book of Galatians and he gripped his heart, came out really the, with this, this, this statement, right? The judge shall live by faith. He gripped in and it started the whole Reformation. But the book of Galatians, also, um, because of it, Martin Luther came out of this Latin phrase, simul justice et peccator, simultaneously just and a sinner. And this is such an important concept. When we are saved, it's not like overnight we don't sin anymore. We are still in the flesh. What changes is how God views you. You are a saint. You are declared righteous. It's not because of goodness that you're saved, but now, after we are saved, we want to do good. So you see the difference. For a long time in my Christian walk, I've always wondered, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian, I love God, but why am I still sinning? Why am I still struggling? Am I not good enough? Simul justice at Peccator. I'm just, but I'm a sinner. And hence, the rest of my life, I live by grace. Even though I fall, I have grace. I can repent. I have grace. It doesn't change my, my sonship, my position in Christ. But it's not just passive. Oh, no, I've sinned, but I, I'm forgiven. I'm still just. It's active. That's why Paul goes on to say, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, what did He do? He loved me and gave Himself up for me. He says we are not, it's not just passive. We are empowered to fight sin. How? Well, chapter 3, 4, 5, you'll read, okay? About the Holy Spirit. But for, here, for now, he says that I've been crucified. My old self, old desires, old plans have been crucified with Christ. My self-centered self now becomes a Christ-centered self. I rely on Christ to overcome. And so, I live by grace, even though I've stumbled and fall. The defining difference between Christianity and this rest of all these world religions and philosophy is grace. What is Grace. Leo Tolstoy, he, he used this example, you know, the, the, the author. He says that this grace, you see, the test of observance to all these external, all these other religions is external conformity to their laws. You conform to their rules, expectation, behaviours. But the test of observance of the teaching of Christ is the realisation that we cannot conform. We cannot meet the expectations of God. We follow all these religions, their external behaviours. It's like standing under a bright light. All around me is lit up. I can see, but I cannot move. I can only stand here and say I'm righteous, but you in the dark, you're unholy. I want to separate from you. But the teaching of Christ is like holding out a lamb right in front of you. Just a small portion is lit up and we are encouraged to move forward, to grow, to come alongside those who are in darkness and walk with them. And so we ask ourselves, right, our faith, you know, how do we approach it? Is it that I'm holy and all these people are in darkness, they are not holy and so I'm separate from them? Because in case I eat beside them, I live by them, I become like them. I mean, there is some wisdom with that. Yes, sometimes we have to be careful about who we mix with. But the gospel says we can actually come alongside because we are just like them. There's no difference. We are sinners, justified by faith. And so we come alongside so Philip Yancey shared, right? He says, really, in other words, the proof of spiritual maturity is not just how pure you are, but awareness of your impurity 
And that awareness opens the door for grace. We live by grace. And all these are all self-crucified with Christ. The story I shared about Augustine in the pastor's voice. After his conversion, he met an old girlfriend. She called out to him. He was very cordial and she thought he's very different. In the past, he would be like hugging me, kissing me, and then now he's like totally different. Did he mistake me for somebody? So she called out to him, Augustine, it is I. And how did he respond? I love it, you know. He says, I know, but it is not I. It is not me anymore. And so while we can still sin, we still fall, we still wrestle, we can say to those addictions, those sins, say, goodbye, I don't need you anymore. I am not me anymore. How do we get empowerment? Well, by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you come for the next few weeks, you will listen. Goes on to say, I don't nullify the grace of God for righteousness comes through the law and Christ died needlessly. If we can save ourselves, if we can do good deeds to please God, then why did Jesus need to die? If there are other people can die for us, then Jesus didn't need to come. And so it brings us back to this whole issue, the just shall live by faith. And that leads to living by grace. Every day we live is by grace. Do you know that? Christine Hoover, she, said, she shared that, you know, once she pulled up her car in the garage and she just sat there. She says, I was so overwhelmed with all these accusations and condemnations that I'm not good enough. And I realized this. If I try to prove that I'm good enough, I always fail. And the way to overcome all these condemnations then is to agree with them to agree with them, but I turn to Scripture because in the Bible, there are many but God promises. Something happens, but God, and everything changes. When God intervenes, everything changes. Yes, I'm condemned, I live in sin, but God made me alive in Christ. Yes, I'm struggling, I cannot overcome my flesh, but God gave me the Holy Spirit to overcome. Yes, I have still all these old thoughts and life and pattern and sins, but God made me a new creation in Christ. So friends, rather than being preoccupied with all these not good enough condemnations, we ought to hold on to the but God promises of Scripture. Frankly, I don't know how much of all this makes sense to you. You know that we live by grace every day, that you feel this self-condemnation. But I have to tell you, I frequently wrestle with this. I think I shared with you all before, just before I went to Pakistan, right? Someone talked to me. Say, in a few years, you'll turn 55. You know what happens at 55, right? You get your CPF. What are you going to do with it? Well, I started thinking and planning. And you know, I used to do finance, right? So 20 years before, before I went to full-time, I did some basic planning. So I love numbers and money, right? So I've been thinking, the more someone brings up the issue, you don't think about it, it's fine, you know? Once you think about it, it just occupies your mind. and say, oh yeah, you know, I shouldn't have done this, I should have done this. And all these complaints and discontentment. Then I went to Pakistan and I realized, wow, $100, you can feed this whole village of people. Why am I thinking, how should I save $100 for the future? And then, you know how I felt? I feel condemned. I feel lousy about myself. I feel like I'm not good enough. What? I've been a Christian for so long, I still wrestle with this. I've been a pastor for 20 years, I still wrestle with this. And what's worse, now I'm the senior pastor. I wrestle. I feel condemned. Why am I like that? But then God reminds me through this text that I'm justified by faith and I live by grace. It is true, I wrestle and discontent, but God knew, but God loved and called me. Although we are condemned, 
we have all this self-condemnation, but friends, it doesn't come from God. And then I was reminded of this verse by in Leviticus where, you know, the Israelites go into the promised land. Every tribe has a land except the Levites. And the verse that comes after, you read, wow, very poor thing, right? Everybody have land. Land in Singapore, very expensive. Levites, no land. But the verse that comes after is because say, Yahweh, the Lord, is their inheritance. And this, when I read this recently, I'm so encouraged because years ago, when I was also wrestling with this issue, I came across this verse as a reminder and I made this promise before God. It's okay if everybody else have land, but I want to live this life. It reminds me of the day I accepted Christ. You know, when I broke down, it says, God, whatever you said to Peter to feed your sheep, that is what I want to do. It reminds me of the time when I read of Jim Elliot, the martyr, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I told the Lord, you know, all these things that I have is what I cannot keep. They do not have eternal value and I want to give them to you. I want to live this simple life, this focused life, this life of serving you, the world before me, the cross, the cross before me, the world behind me. No wonder I keep struggling. I probably got it wrong. You know, it reminds me that the grace of God is sufficient. I live daily by grace. And that is the gospel. So what do we do with all these things? Last week I shared, we live the gospel, we love the gospel, we share the gospel. It becomes the focus of our lives. Everything that we do, we do it well because there's a reason. You know, December is coming up, we have this Christmas concert. And I encourage all of us to pray for somebody that we can bring along so that we can have this Chasu Rice story. What is this Chasu Rice? Well, let's watch this clip. Those of you who came for Journey in July, you have already seen it before, but let's look at it again. When I attended my ex-colleague's funeral, it brought back memories of when I had a hectic schedule in that multinational company. I was often tempted to only eat with Christian colleagues or by myself to wind down. It dawned on me if we only eat with people we care for, value and love. If we choose to eat with a certain group of friends, we are subtly sending a message of love, friendship and bond to them. One day, God placed a burden in my heart to have lunch with this particular ex-colleague. Chasu Rice was one of her favourites, and although I did not fancy it, I accompanied her faithfully. As she was very much older than I was, we did not have much in common to talk about. Most of the time, she talked and I listened. This lunch arrangement went on for a few years until I left the company. A few months ago, I discovered she was battling with cancer through a mutual ex-colleague. I asked if I could visit her. Thankfully, she agreed to my visit as she had kept the news away from many ex-colleagues. That morning, just like those lunch appointments, I sat beside her and listened to her struggles. I finally asked if I could share the gospel with her. 
this time, I talked and she listened to me attentively. She prayed to receive Christ that day and continued to grow in the faith through online sermons until she passed away. certainty that my ex-colleague is in heaven. I now understand that we eat with our loved ones and friends so that we may feast with them eternally. We eat with our loved ones and friends so that we may feast with them in eternity. Living the gospel, loving the gospel, sharing the gospel doesn't take a lot of dramatic things but in our daily lives. So what is your Chashu Rai story? I have a few brewing and I'm excited to see what God will do. Maybe in December or January, I'll ask you what is your Chashu Rai story. So now let us take this time to pray. I'll give each of us the time to pray. Ask God for somebody that we can invite to our Christmas concert. And then the next few months, we have opportunities to meet up with them. So let's pray. Indeed, this grace that is given to us is not for us to keep, but to share. Because there are many others who still need to hear this gospel. Church, let us rise as we respond again.